So, Matthew chapter number 9, and uh, we're going to be this morning in the last set of three miracles that Matthew kind of records here in this, in this dense little section of, of Jesus' life. And uh, as we started in Matthew 8, we've sort of seen the veil on Jesus' person and authority pulled back piece by piece as we moved from teaching to healing to changing the weather to deliverance from demons to deliverance from sins. And now we have the the final three accounts here in this section and sort of the peak of all these things, which we'll find in the two responses that we see at the end of our passage today before we move on. All of these miracles kind of serve two purposes, and we've talked about this a little bit. But the miracles, true stories, they're evidence within themselves. They're, they're amazing within themselves. Just to tell the stories of what Jesus did strengthens our faith in and of itself. But they're also illustrative. They really happen. They're true stories. But they also teach us more than just the fact that they happen. A few weeks ago, uh, Lizzie and I were gone on a little weekend getaway to um, Connecticut to a marriage retreat, and uh, we went together to an activity called an escape room. And I don't know if you've ever heard of one of these things. Lizzie's always wanted to try one. And uh, it's an activity where you pay somebody to lock you in a room with no clear way out, and you have to use your, your reason and your thinking skills and your logic to find clues and hidden codes to, to find keys and that kind of stuff to get out. And uh, as soon as you open one thing, well, there's another lock to unlock or another puzzle to solve. And it was pretty enjoyable. And uh, at the end, if you complete it, you're rewarded with the joy of having completed it. And if you don't complete it, then the owners are still rewarded with the joy of having your money. Um, But anyways, in the sequence of this escape room, um, which is actually a series of rooms in this case, we were stuck in this little tiny hallway, you know, maybe three three feet wide. Uh, by five feet long, and there's a door here and a door here, and you've come through the one door, and that shuts and locks, and now you have to get through this other door, Um, and it was covered with these slats. If you can imagine a doorway with with slats that are dropped into a little slot, so they make a barrier, and up at the top, there's two padlocks that you have to unlock to pull the slats out. Well, we, we went through the puzzles and the, you know, thinking and a little bit of arguing, and you know, we finally, we figured out where the keys were, and we were able to unlock these locks and pull the slats off, and we were so excited, we just kind of set them aside and move on to the next room. Well, turns out a little bit later, we were stumped, totally stumped. You have an hour to do this, and I'll try not to take an hour to tell the story, but um, we, were, we could not figure out one clue. Like, we understood it was a puzzle, but we just couldn't figure out where in the world does this information come from, and then it dawned on us, and we looked back at that pile of slats that were in that doorway, And if you flip them around on the back side that you couldn't see before you took them off, there there were the clues there. And that was a puzzle too, but it was there. So we we put them back in place and looked at them. And from the reverse view, we could see the information that we needed. Well, that's a little bit like what Matthew is doing here. The, The stories are true stories. They're real. They really happen. And in and of themselves, they are something to come to terms with. You have to believe them. But what they also say about who Jesus is, as you look back at them, is important for us too, as well, 2,000 years ago. So Matthew is sort of building up this evidence of who Jesus is. The first three miracles we looked at showed us things about Jesus' mercy in reaching to the outcasts and the unclean. 
The second three miracles showed us the difficulty of being a follower of Jesus, but how Jesus' power sort of transcends that difficulty. And these final three miracles that we'll read today here in just a moment show us again his authority, his compassion, but they come together to teach us about the importance of faith. And we've sung a lot about that this morning already. Our faith is important. And I've titled the sermon, Jesus Person and Our Faith. I went back and forth. Should I say Jesus authority in our faith? Jesus compassion in our faith? Well, all those things kind of come together in who Jesus is. And there's, those are the two things. It's who Jesus is, but it also comes down to our faith in him as well. Faith is the bedrock of our relationship to God, at least in terms of, of our side of things. It's along with repentance. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. It's the foundational element of our Christian experience. How we come to know Christ is through repentance and faith. It's how we begin with Christ in salvation, but it's also how we walk with him each day. The Bible has a lot to say about faith. One of the more famous portions of scripture is from Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, which says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old have received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then a little later on in that passage, we read that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In these accounts, Matthew wants us to know more than just Jesus exists, more than just simply that these things happened even. He wants us to know who he is, and he's building a case for why we should follow him. All of these displays of power and authority and compassion point to this. Jesus is worthy of our faith, and only faith in him leads to new life. That'll be our kind of big idea as we look through these passages so let us start by reading, I'll read aloud from Matthew 9, beginning in verse number 18. And I'm just going to start by reading verses 18 through 26, and that's where we'll begin. It says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died. But come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment because she said to herself, if I only touch the fringe of his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly she was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all of that district. Let's stop there for now. We'll pray that the Lord will help us as we look at these words. Father, thank you for teaching us these things. Thank you for uh, the gift of faith. Thank you for allowing us to exercise faith 
Thank you for being a faithful God who we can trust, whom we can believe in, whom we can know for sure that you are who you say you are, that you will do what you've promised, that you are good and gracious and righteous. Thank you for providing a way for us to see you and to know you, to be forgiven by you. And as we look at these words of Jesus and these actions of Jesus, may we see more than just the stories, but may we see the Lord Jesus who is worthy of our faith, worthy of following. And change our hearts and our minds this morning as we listen to the word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this first set of stories we're going to look at, we see this, life from helplessness, life from helplessness. And uh, if you remember where we left off last week, Jesus had just given uh, those analogies. If you remember, um, you can't put new wine in an old wineskin, and you can't put a new patch on old clothing because the old will just be destroyed by the new. And he was giving analogies about newness, and he's sort of saying, I'm making everything new, not just a patch and not just new content, but I'm making all things new. And he does make all things new. And with that idea of newness in mind, or maybe restoration, Matthew then tells us these stories about death and disease. Death and disease. While he was saying these things to them, talking about those little analogies, a ruler came and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. A ruler. We read in parallel accounts uh, that this man was named Jairus. You probably think of him that way. And uh, Jairus, we read here that he's a ruler in another place that says he was a ruler of the synagogue. And uh, that was possibly a position of, of like keeping the order of worship in the synagogue. And he was a ruler in that sense, in a religious way. But the synagogue was sort of the center of not just religion, but of life for these people. So he was a religious ruler, but there wouldn't have been as much separation between the religious and the regular or the, the sacred and the mundane as we would probably say today. For many of these people, their religion was everything. It was their way of life. So to say that this man was a ruler, a religious ruler, is to say that he was well-known, well-recognized, and an upstanding sort of upper echelon member, not just of the religion, but of the whole society. And we see him coming to Jesus and kneeling before him. Now, we've seen this word for kneeling a couple times before. We saw it uh, perhaps first in the story of the Magi, the wise men who came and they saw Jesus, came into the house and they, they knelt before him. And uh, some translations even say that they worshiped because the word is often used in that respect. We saw it again in the story of the leprous man who came to Jesus and he also knelt down or worshiped Jesus in that sense. And whether this is meant to be interpreted as worship or just respect, it was at least that, extreme respect for Jesus. He comes, and he's at a critical moment. He was helpless. We're going to see a, a kind of helplessness again in just a couple verses with the, the woman that enters into the story. But uh, think of this. Uh, given this man's status, Jairus status in society, given his class, his position, we can safely assume that Jesus was probably not his first option. 
His daughter, no doubt, had been sick, and perhaps he had he had tried doctors, he had tried remedies, he had tried advice from families and friends, but at this point, he was brought to nothing. And at that point is where Jesus' compassion and authority entered in. That's interesting because last week we had that account of Matthew, his calling, and he numbers himself among the, the tax collectors and the sinners. And uh, that group of people were, if you remember, often called the, the people of the earth, the commoners. So we looked at the commoners, and now we're looking at a ruler, but all are brought to Jesus at the point of need. All are brought to Jesus at the point of need. And in the truest sense, it's eternal need, utmost need. A need of life, and Jesus is the life giver. Well, they went immediately, it says. Jesus rose with his disciples and followed him, verse 19 says. But as we read on in the story quickly, we see this, it changes, an interruption. It says, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment, and because she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. I think this is probably one of the most amazing interruptions in the Bible. Um, we don't know the entire scene. From other accounts, we know that there were many people around. It was a large crowd. Uh, but we do know that she was intent, this person, this woman, and she was desperate. It says that she had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, this wouldn't have been life-threatening necessarily, but it would have been debilitating in a number of ways. Now, these are some of the parts of Scripture that we don't speak about so much, but there are chapters in the Old Testament that regulated ceremonial cleanness for bodily discharges. And I won't read those passages to you right now. We will at some point. But this applied to both men and women. And typically, there were ritual washings that took place during the normal cycles of life. But for this woman, the cycle never stopped. The discharge never stopped for 12 years. So as a Jewish woman, she was unclean, according to the law, for 12 years straight with no recourse. No, no washing could help her because it was ongoing. This is why the interruption is so unique, because Jairus was a, a leader of the synagogue. He was at the center of Jewish life and religion. While this poor woman had been excluded from those very things because of her condition for 12 years. And we see her desperation as well. She wanted to be made whole. Uh, in other places, it says she has spent all of her living on doctors and physicians, and she was hopeless. There are times when, when life is hopeless because life itself is ending or threatened, just like Jairus' daughter who was dying and now dead. And then there are times in life when it seems hopeless because it's difficult. You may not be in danger of death, but you feel a deadness inside. And that's where this woman was. She was literally excluded, hopeless, every day, longing, praying for a change. 
And her hope here was that she says, if I only touch the fringe of his garment, that would have probably been the, the tassels on a, a prayer shawl that most devout Jewish men wore. And she said, if I can only touch the fringe of his garments, and it sounds, if we're perfectly honest, a little bit superstitious, and maybe it was a little bit, but she didn't know. She, she had no doubt of Jesus and what he could do. She maybe didn't understand fully who he was. She probably didn't want to hinder him, and she probably didn't want to touch his body because, well, that would have made him unclean. But again, just like with the leper, there was a lot of faith here, and Jesus' compassion enters in, sort of overriding those questions. And it says in verse 22, Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. He calls her daughter, a term of not simply familial relationship. In this case, it wasn't Jesus' family member, but a term of endearment, a term of respect, a term of love and compassion and Interestingly, there are two daughters then in this passage, the daughter of Jairus, who is now dead, and then this daughter of God, who both experienced Jesus' power in an amazing way. And on both accounts, faith sort of comes in on one side of the equation. It's not stated explicitly with, with the ruler Jairus, but in his words, he says, if you lay your hand on her, she will live. And with this woman, it was, if I could only touch the edge of his garment, I'll be made whole. And Jesus said to her, your faith has made you well. Now, we know that it was the power of God that made her well, but faith was the human aspect, the, that human portion. Faith is not a work. Faith is a gift, the scripture tells us, but faith is a disposition. And faith does lead to action. James tells us that faith without works is, is dead. And in these cases, both with Jairus and the woman, their faith caused them to reach out. For Jairus, again, as, as a ruler of the synagogue, the rest of his crowd weren't really too fond of Jesus. But in that point, he had faith. He came to the end of his resources and he had faith. And with this woman, even though she risked being shamed for touching Jesus, still, she had faith that he could do it. And of course, he could. And he did. And we could ask at this point, do you have faith in Jesus? Not simply do you believe that he's a real person, but do you have this kind of faith, the kind of faith that stakes your whole life on what he has done? on what he has said. Well, the story goes on. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Um, these flute players were part of the ritual mourning, and that's prescribed uh, for the Jewish people in the Mishnah. And even the poorest people, when a family member died, were required to hire two flute players and one professional wailing woman. And Jairus was not a poor man. He was 
part of the upper class of society. So we could probably assume that there were many flute players and many of these professional mourners wailing. And that would have been beside the actual family and friends who were actually mourning. And when Jesus said to them, go away, she's not dead, but she's sleeping. It wasn't a dismissal of the fact that she was dead. It had been told and he knew that she was dead. But he also knew that in just a few moments, the service of the mourners was not going to be required anymore. And you get a little hint in the passage that he was speaking to those professional mourners here because when he said that, they laughed. Now, family members may have been taken back when Jesus said, she's not dead, she's sleeping, but there wouldn't have been any laughter. But for these people, they were just there to do their job. They were there to make a living. But Jesus was there to restore life. They laughed when he said, she's not dead, she's sleeping. Well, then he cleared him out. When the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went through all that district. Matthew often shortens uh, the stories of the miracles that other gospel writers write, and sometimes he writes them in ways that are so understated, and you could almost breeze by it. He took her by the hand, and she arose. The girl was just dead, and now she's living. She got up. The mourners were put out of work this day because of Jesus' authority and his compassion. The faith of the ruler, Jairus, was met in his daughter's resurrection, just like the faith of that woman was met in her healing. And they were met in the person of Jesus. Jesus is worthy of our faith, not faith in faith, not blind faith, not empty faith, but faith in the Son of God, the life giver, the redeemer. As we read from Hebrews 11:1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Life was hoped for in this case, but not seen. Healing was hoped for in the case of the woman, but not yet seen. But there was faith, faith in Jesus, who is proving who he is. And he has proved it even more now by himself rising from the dead. Eternal life is hoped for, but for many not seen. Forgiveness, joy, removal of guilt are hoped for, but for many not seen. These things are often hoped for, but not seen, that is, apart from Jesus. Faith in him is life-giving. He is worthy of our faith. Well, quickly, we're going to read on. We see, secondly, seeing from blindness. Look at verses 27 through 31. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, 
See that no one knows about this, but they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. These things, again, speak the truth of the miracles. This is a story of a real miracle that takes place, but also uh, this is an amazing picture, an amazing analogy, that famous, perhaps most famous hymn that we often sing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And there's a sense in which, biblically speaking, this healing of blindness is the most important type of miracle that Jesus performed. Why would I say that? Now, all the miracles were miraculous. I mean, we just saw a dead girl raised to life. Why would I say that opening the eyes of the blind was more important? Well, in all the Old Testament, where many miracles were performed by the prophets, even dead raised to life, we don't ever once see a blind person having their sight restored. There are no records of actual blindness being restored. Now, there are prophecies about it. One of those we read a little bit earlier in Psalm 146, where it says, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. There are other prophecies, like Isaiah 42, where it says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisoners who sit in darkness. Another place in Isaiah, chapter 35, it says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. A coming day was prophesied when the Lord would show up and the eyes of the blind would be opened. Now, maybe this is mostly an allegory. Maybe it was mostly to be taken spiritually. And it does have spiritual meaning, just like the dead being raised shows similarly how we were dead and raised spiritually to life. But Jesus really did open the eyes of the blind. And he did it quite a few times. It's probably one of the most often repeated types of miracles that Jesus did. It's sort of a messianic miracle. He's proving who he is in a special way by opening the eyes of the blind. There's also another little messianic piece in this story because the blind men call him the son of David. We saw that in Matthew 1.1, where we read that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. That's where we see Jesus' kingship enter in, where he fulfills that promise that one from David's lineage would rule forever. Jesus is that ruling king. When we read this story and the, the men say to him, have mercy on us, son of David, he doesn't say anything to them. They keep following him until they get into a house, and then he turns to them and says, do you believe that I can do this? And they said, yes. Why didn't he say anything? Why, why did he keep quiet? We, we can only speculate. 
At the end of the miracle, he says, like he has before, don't tell anyone about this. We could speculate that perhaps Jesus was trying to avoid the wrong kind of attention. The title Son of David probably would have made people think about a political messiahship, whereas we know that Jesus came not expressly for that purpose at that time. But for whatever reason, he wanted them to be silent. He came to seek and save those who were lost. He said, do you believe that I am able? They said, yes. And he touched their eyes and healed them. He said, according to your faith, be it done to you. According to their faith, it was done. Not because they had enough faith, but because they had faith. They believed he could do it. Now notice, their faith didn't change Jesus' ability. He doesn't become more powerful the more we believe in him. No, his authority is there. We've already seen it. But in their instance, they had come to that point of faith where they believed. Their mindset had probably changed. They had a, a heart of trust in this person who they hadn't even ever seen. And we can, again, ask, do we have that kind of faith? Our faith doesn't change who Jesus is. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, no matter whether we believe in him or not. But do you believe? There is no point that his authority truly enters in in a life-giving way apart from faith. Is he your redeemer? Is he your Lord? Has he opened your eyes? Has he raised you to spiritual life? He is worthy of our faith. One more account here. Just verses 32 through 34. And this wraps up this section of miracles. It says, as they were going that way, away, behold, a demon-oppressed man was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. A few weeks ago, we already had seen demons cast out um, from the gatherings, but this one is a little different. This man's demon oppression caused his speech to stop, and everybody knew him as the mute man because when he began to speak, everyone was amazed. And uh, Matthew writes about this miracle in such a passing way that you almost lose the wonder of it a man tormented by this evil spirit for who knows how long, never able to speak to his family and friends, and now he's freed and healed. And you could ask, why is Matthew, why does he just kind of brush by this and just gets to the end of it? Why is he going so quickly? Well, we get the idea that by this time, after we've read miracle after miracle, the point has been made. And Matthew comes to the response in verse 33, where the crowd say, never was anything like this done in all Israel. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. That little statement puts a bookend on these miracles. If you remember back in chapter 8, where we started with the Roman centurion who came to Jesus for his servant to be healed, what did Jesus say about it? When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. 
Never in all of Israel had any of this been seen. Not this kind of power. This dead-raising, blind-eyes-opening power, miracle after miracle. And not all in all of Israel has this kind of faith been seen. Because never before had they been put face-to-face with God in human flesh in such a way. There's not that kind of power in anything else, in anyone else, except the Lord, except in Jesus. And faith, might I say, in anything else can never be that kind of faith. It never can. Everyone has faith in something. But do you have this kind of faith in this kind of man? And not just this kind of man, but this man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, in all of these accounts, we've seen faith. Faith, faith, faith. But there's one final response. In verse 34, where the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. With all the examples of faith, we see this, where the Pharisees sort of drive the nail a little bit deeper in their own coffin of disbelief. When Jesus forgave the the sins of the lame man before he healed him, do you remember the the Pharisees accused him of blasphemy? Only God can forgive sins. Well, here the coin is flipped and the Pharisees themselves blaspheme by accusing God himself in human flesh of working miracles by the power of the evil one. Notice, they could no longer deny that there was power there. They couldn't sweep it under the rug that this this Jesus guy is a pretty interesting character. But they would not believe in who he was. They would not believe that he was the Messiah. They had to make that separation in their mind And they went to the point of saying, he's casting out demons by the prince of demons, by the devil himself, perhaps. And we read in James that even the demons believe, just like the demons he cast out and sent into the pigs, and they said they knew he was the son of God. They knew who he was. Even the demons believe and tremble, but not even these Pharisees would believe. This is what John was speaking of when he said in John 1, 11 and 12, that Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that is sort of the question. After seeing all of these works, all of these miracles that Matthew condenses into these three chunks, And everything they tell us about who Jesus is, that's sort of the question. Do you believe in him? Not just that he existed, again, but do you believe that he is the Savior, the Son of God? Have you ever asked yourself the question, do I really have faith in Jesus? Not just have I read about him, have I heard about him, do I kind of agree that, yeah, he's a good guy. Have you asked yourself the question, do I really have faith in the Lord Jesus? 
If you do, have you ever asked somebody else that question? Have you ever looked at somebody in the eye, somebody you love, and asked them that question? Maybe not just like that, but have you asked them, do you really have faith in Jesus? When you see these accounts in Scripture, does it spark amazement and wonder and worship? Because you know that not only did this happen, but this is the same Jesus who died save sinners like you and me and who rose again himself. And again, if you are a believer, do you regularly run to Jesus in times of life that demand strength and help, knowing that only he is the one that we can turn to? He is the one that we can trust in? What in life is bringing you to the end of yourself that demands this kind of faith in this kind of person. Again, not just faith in faith, not just blind faith, but a real living faith in the God who made the universe, who entered this world in the person of Jesus Christ and who lives evermore. Jesus is worthy of our faith and only faith in him leads to new life. Lord, thank you for these words of scripture. Thank you for the life-giving truth. Uh, it's, it's confrontational, Lord. Uh, there's no way around it. Jesus is who he says he is. Lord, you've, you've changed so many of our lives by your power, by your gospel. You've entered in. You've restored what was what is brokenness. You're making new what was old. You're delivering us each day, and one day we'll be totally delivered, Lord. But perhaps there's somebody here who hasn't, who has not placed their faith in that way, that kind of faith in that kind of person. Lord Jesus, would you work through the Holy Spirit? Would you work in hearts even today? And even for those of us who have known you for years and years and years, would you renew the joy and the depth of our faith every day, to call out to you, to trust in you, to come to you, as we see your authority and your compassion wrapped up in your person. May we trust you. We love you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.